to a special edition of Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I am your special guest host, Garrett Hawkins, this week, and I have a couple of rock stars who have joined me uh, as we talk about all things water regulation. Now, when I think historically uh, about Missouri Farm Bureau and the many issues that we've touched through the years, uh, water has always been one of the key issues that our members have engaged in. And so today, uh, I'm very excited that we have two special guests who are really, in my view, preeminent experts in, in the Federal Clean Water Act and their ability to relate it to us as grassroots farmers and ranchers on the ground. And so I'm joined by Dave Ross and Anna Wildeman. So Dave Ross most recently served as the Assistant Administrator for Water uh, at the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington, D.C. And Miss Anna was the Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator. And so these two leaders have spanned, uh, if I think through their years of service, uh, they have state regulatory experience, they now have federal regulatory experience, and now they are both in private practice, continuing to lead discussion and lead the charge uh, on all things Clean Water Act. So again, very excited. So Dave, let's start with you. Welcome. Well, hey, thanks for thanks for having us on, Garrett. It's an absolute pleasure to be here in Missouri and to, to spend some time with the Missouri Farm Bureau. We really appreciate the invite. Well, <laughs> we have some important issues to talk about uh, with you and Anna today. And, um, you know, as I think about the Clean Water Act uh, and think through at least the last decade, you know, we used to talk a lot about at least some changes, right, to, to provide clarity in terms of federal jurisdiction. A and it seems like now, Dave and Anna, the pendulum of regulatory discussion just seems to swing even more erratically. So help me help me understand at least where, where are we starting at today? And maybe let's go from there. Yeah. Well, so the pendulum, as a comment on that, it, it, you know, it's bad government, just to put it frankly. You know, the federal government should be able to provide clarity and consistency to the regulated community, to the farmers, to the ranchers, to home builders, anybody who who operates under the authority of the Clean Water Act. You know, over time, it's a it's a you know it's a challenging issue. You mentioned it. Um, it's become a spiritual issue, and that that is leading to the pendulum swing. And so, you know, on on one side of the fence, you have folks who are really concerned and interested in private property rights and what they can do on their land. And the other side of the spectrum, there is a protect the environment, the ends justify the means. And in the area of water, it becomes sort of a religious connection to water. And so it's becoming more difficult to find common ground. Where we currently stand right now is the navigable waters protection rule that was adopted under the, the last administration, the Trump administration, that Anna and I were able to quarterback through for the last several years. Um, that is the law of the land. And it, it has been in place in all 50 states. Um, you know, you hear some argument right now about the need to provide, um, you know, sort of a, a legacy or, you know, something that will withstand the test of time. You know, I'm obviously a bit biased because I actually helped write and, you know, and manage the rule. 
But that rule is in place. It has survived the early rounds of litigation. And so the law of the land right now is a navigable waters protection rule. And we can talk a little bit about what that means out on the landscape. Um, but the new administration has come in and is, is, has expressed its intent to not only revisit, but also to you know, take the, the navigable waters protection rule off the books. I would just add to that, you know, uh, you talked about the pendulum, and, and that's right. And I think Dave jumped right into the, the substantive swing of what the rules say, what's required of people. But you're also going to see a procedural swing, and that is we spent a lot of time touring around the country trying to reengage with the ag community at the very beginning uh, to rebuild the relationship that was so, I think, damaged over over the course of many years with the, the 2015 WOTUS rule. And I think that that's, you're not going to see that as much uh, going forward, uh, that type of engagement, that sincere engagement uh, that, that we really tried to, to execute while we were there. So both of you bring an interesting, interesting perspective because, because you are experts in the 2015 WOTUS rule. You also understand cooperative federalism in terms of where federal jurisdiction ends and where state jurisdiction begins. So walk me through then when you came into your positions with an EPA, the mindset, your experience from what had happened with WOTUS and how that informed the process going forward then. Well, uh, I'll start um, because I did a lot. I think I toured around for about a year. Um, meeting with farm bureaus and other uh, ag associations across the country, really, um, to engage on, you know, not necessarily the substance of WOTUS, but other water quality issues that we'll talk about maybe a little later, um, nutrients and things. And, and boy, did I get an earful, uh, you know, from folks were surprised that I would show up um, and interact with them because of just the relationship had grown so sour. Um, that and I learned it everywhere. I, everywhere I went, I heard from farmers how they just felt disrespected and they weren't listened to, and and so you know that for me informed absolutely how we continued our relationship development and our reg process development through what we hope to be really meaningful interaction um, and input. Yeah, and the cooperative federalism piece. You know, I saw the the frustration that that Anna just described being out in the landscape with the farmers. You know, I was in Wyoming working for the Wyoming Attorney General's office when the 2015 rule came down and several other rules that were sort of impacted how we use the land. Um, and the, I guess, the lack of respect for state authority out of the federal government um, was something that struck me when I was a regulator uh, and a water quality attorney for the state of Wyoming and then ultimately for the state of Wisconsin as well. And so the narrative that if the f big federal government doesn't regulate, the sky must be falling um, ignores the fact that we have 50 state programs out there that have their own regulatory programs. Missouri, they're great people at, at the Missouri DNR. Um, we know them. Um, they love their land. They're closest to the landscape. Um, and so the, the thought that the states can't regulate or don't regulate or will race to the bottom is really a 1970s view of the Clean Water Act, view of the world. And so our job coming in was to not just re rebalance the relationship with the regulated community, but it was also to respect the rights and responsibilities of the states. And so we carried that into our regulatory agenda. 
And and the way that I looked at you know, crafting WOTUS, for example, was to know that the states are there. And there are certain features that the states can regulate should they choose. Um, and some states that may be ephemeral, some states that you know may, may not, maybe isolated wetlands. Um, but it really is, let's get a baseline that everyone can agree to um, and we'll withstand the test of time legally. Um, and then the states, the states are there. And so that, that's the part that we really tried to refocus and rebalance when we came in. Well, and that was the approach that farmers and ranchers appreciated. And so you all may remember that Missouri Farm Bureau members were quite engaged during the WOTUS rule, including taking to social media, right, in creative ways to try to drive discussion, not just among farm families, but from a greater public standpoint of folks questioning, well, why are farmers so concerned about a ditch being regulated or an erosional feature? So... What have you seen? You know, you talk about the passion that you see from farmers and ranchers on this issue. Like, how did you feel that then as you engaged or what have you seen through the years? Well, so the passion is born out of knowing the land. You mean, you're on you're on your farm, you're on your ranch, you know, the back 40, right? Certainly right. better than someone at the state level, much better than somebody inside the Beltway a thousand miles away in Washington, D.C. Um, and so that grassroots experience, you know, one was really, really valuable in in challenging the 2015 clean water rule, which which was an overreach, a federal overreach of authority out onto the landscape. But, it, you know, it, it's one thing to complain about. You know, we don't like the big government. We don't like the overreach. But what does it mean on the ground? And, you know, the, the, that passion helped illustrate some of the actual examples. I mean, there was at a high level how much water with, within the state of Missouri. And there, was a, there was a map that was created that was, you know, very, very effective because um, it gave at a global scale, a macro scale, the impact of federal regulation. But it really was sort of the what, you know, I have an ephemeral ditch running through my property and you know this is how i you know this is how i run row crop near it through it how i do pesticides application you know whether or not i do maintenance on the ditch all of those things that the farmer does to to create you know capital for his or her family um you know what did it mean on the ground for that particular ditch and that is lost in the conversations in the hallways of congress and epa regulations and so that grassroots campaign back then, and I think you know, going forward, it'll be fairly important as as the government revisits you know, what it means, what what federal regulation means out on the landscape. So let's talk a little bit about our farms, and let's talk about the things help me paint the picture as to what should be on our members' minds moving forward with this discussion. So if you think about ditches, if you think about ephemerals, if you think about prior converted cropland, what should be on the minds of our members um, and what to watch for going forward? I think the short answer is all of the above. Uh, Okay. Ephemerals, ditches, prior converted croplands, you know, the navigable waters protection rule did a lot of work to clarify all of those areas and the scope of federal regulation around them. And, um, you know, do not expect to see that in what the next administration does with the definition. Yeah, I, I would focus specifically on ephemerals. Um, that was a very, very clear line that we drew. And so, in fact, you know, 
you know, spelled it out, ephemerals were not regulated. There was an exclusion for ephemeral drainages. Um, I think you'll see some feathering out across the watershed in the isolated wetlands, isolated ponds uh, space. So we really tried to focus on that core wetland structure and complex that contributed to water quality on sort of the main stems or the intermittents in the main stems. Um, and so you'll see some, some, I think this next administration looking at feathering out into the landscape, you know, out into the watershed. Uh, we put down some fairly clear rules on, on drainage ditches, um, what's in, what's out. And, um, you know, after back in the day, there was a decision, they used to use migratory birds to establish jurisdiction um, over isolated ponds and wetlands. And then the Supreme Court had to tell the government, no, yeah, no, you can't do that. Um, and so, you know, they, they used to use ducks to establish jurisdiction. And after the Supreme Court shut that down, they began using ditches because ditches would spider, you know, spider out into the landscape similar to how ducks would fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you'll see some revisiting a bit on the ditch discussion. Um, and then the prior converted cropland, I think, you know, Anna, you know, personally spent a lot of time over with the U.S. Department of Agriculture actually talking to them about, you know, what are prior converted croplands, how does it work within the ag program, you know, and under what circumstances do, do farmers either, you know, keep them out of production or bring them back into production. And for the first time ever, we defined prior converted cropland in the WOTUS context. And um, but that was built through conversations with the agriculture department. Um, and so, uh, but I, I, you'll see some of that get revisited in, in the next administration or this administration. So a lot of listening went into drawing for many of us the first time some pretty bright lines, right? And trying to provide regulatory clarity and certainty for farmers and landowners, right? And, and the regulated community. But how, you know, we talk about permitting, we, we try to um, inform as to, okay, what happens when we see potentially an expansion in federal jurisdiction? What does that potentially mean on the ground for those of us that are just trying to do the good work every day of raising crops and livestock? What's the practical impact? Well, so the, the one thing that you'll, there's sort of this myth or a counterpunch that you know, folks will say, you know, it matters on the landscape to farmers and farmers are going to have to be worried about permits. And folks like to say, well, you have, you have some permitting exclusions in the Clean Water Act in, in the wetland space under the 404 program is, you know, the, the program that regulates what, you know, the, what material goes into a wetland or material goes into a ditch as opposed to pollutants that enter it under, under the other provisions of the Clean Water Act. And so, there's this why do farmers care because you have permitting exemptions. But the folks who say that probably haven't walked a farm, don't know about pesticide application, don't know about, you know, precision application of nutrient and manure management. And those aren't filling ditches. Those aren't filling wetlands. They're not subject to the 404 permitting exemptions. You know, there are some Clean Water Act obligations with pesticide application. And so if... Uh, a, an intermittent or a perennial river flows through your property, you know, to stay X amount of feet from it, right? When you're, when you're doing your precision application, if it's an ephemeral um, and it's like a dry ditch or just a gully or a low point, um, and suddenly there's a question about whether or not that's federal jurisdiction as you're out trying to do, you know, herbicide application, like, 
we shouldn't have farmers second guessing where they do their herbicide applications in a low lying area in the middle of a field. Um, and I think that is the point that gets lost when you're in the halls of a, a big federal agency a thousand miles from a farm. And so I, you know, if, if I'm projecting forward and I'm in the agricultural space, um, I'm worrying about those issues. So where do they, where do you do precision application? Where do you do um, pesticide application? Um, and, and the more uh, jurisdictional cross points out on the landscape, um, the more you have to be concerned about, you know, the big government knocking on your door. Yeah, it's just, it's really hard uh, as a farmer myself to try to um, explain on a daily basis what goes into my decision making, right? And so much of what we do every day is impacted by Mother Nature, right? And, and so, you know, just to dovetail a little bit, you know, when we talk about climate spaces, we talk about conservation tillage and, and all these practices that are quote unquote climate friendly. You know, at the end of the day, it, it's great, but I still have to make decisions on the ground each season based on the factors that I'm facing, whether it's weed pressure, insect pressure, you name it. We've had army worms that have hit my fall pastures uh, just on Monday. So that day I was making a split decision as to what it, what I needed to do from a chemical application standpoint and trying to get it done. And so trying to inform regulators what goes into a farmer's mindset every day, and then you throw this in, it makes your head spin. And honestly, it makes me angry <laughs> to think about it. So, Well, Anna, you've done you know, a lot of work in the nutrient management space, right? Yes. You know, um, up, on, up on farms in Wisconsin. And, you know, once you like walk through, you know, how the nutrient management planning, um, <laughs> I, I just, I just walked her right into, for folks oh, on the podcast. Get, yeah. It's even more gripping folks. Hey, hey, thankfully we're, we're, we're on the radio, we're on a podcast and we're not seeing facial expressions, um, but I'm in trouble. Anna? Yeah, let's have the lawyers talk about nutrient management planning. That sounds uh, like it'll be good. Um, you know, look, I've spent, I spent, uh, hours, overnights, weeks, months working with nutrient management planners um, to get packages together that the state regulator will accept. This is a state and PDS permit program for large farms, right? Um, and, you know, the countless hours that a, a lawyer would spend looking at nutrient management plans just, you know, it just, it just shows you that, that there are just tens of thousands of hours that go in from the actual farmer side of things. I mean, I can't explain how, how I know what farmers do. I mean, and I don't run a farm, but it's, it's significant. And I think what happens when you get through that state regulatory program, you get involved in it, you understand it, you start to work within it, um, you know the rules of the road. And what we're talking about right now is when the federal government comes in, it's different. Um, you don't necessarily know the rules of the road. You're not interacting with the federal government on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis like you are with your state regulators. And it can, it can really, you know, cause delays, uh, you know, and, and other sort of project management, timeline, cost estimate. It can blow everything out of the water uh, when you step into the federal government's sphere of, of regulation. And so, you know, it, it's, there's a lot there. Thanks, Dave, for that. Uh, but, you know, go ahead. Yeah, not knowing the rules of the road, I think, you know, translate it back to what is for a second. That is, you know, what we got rid of was the significant nexus test that 
I'll know it when I see it when I'm a regulator walking the back 40. Um, and, but I maintain my flexibility to assert jurisdiction over that water body if I want. And it's, it's a subjective style test, you know. And so one of the things that we did was to try to get rid of that subjective style analysis so that you can plan, you know, the beginning of your pasture season, the beginning of a nutrient management season um, going forward. You spend a lot of money on a nutrient management planner. Um, and But if you don't, if you have a, a, a you know, a low-lying area that gets flooded a little bit or might get a little marshy from time to time, do you have to plan for that or not? And, and our rule at least tried to answer that question. And I'm, I'm worried that some of that certainty is about to go away. Well, I want to keep the conversation flowing. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> I want to pick up on something, Anna, that you mentioned that really triggered a thought in my mind. And that was an experience that we've had in Missouri with numeric nutrient criteria, surface water, and again, going back to how much authority EPA exerts versus what the state does and you know dave you picked up on it that our department of natural resources the leadership we have in place does a really good job like and they they have in my mind been pretty assertive back to epa in a lot of ways of saying you know we have the capacity we are closest to the people we're closest to the ground and we're going to to really push hard on cooperative federalism so is it that way you know what have you seen well, that's a great question um, because, you know, one of the things, aside from these major rulemakings, one of the other really important priorities that we had in the Office of Water was to really refocus EPA's role in oversight of state programs, uh, like you're talking about, like okay. water quality standards, for example. Um, you know, if you look at <clears throat> what EPA does in that space, there there's a lot of strong arming, or there has historically been a lot of strong arming. Um, EPA has the, the authority and the power to disapprove a state action and then promulgate its own in replacement. And, you know, we, we pushed on our staff pretty hard um, to say, you know, where is that line and why are we crossing it so often, stepping into the state's role? Um, shouldn't we be giving states more uh, more ability to, you know, direct traffic the way that they see fit for their resources on the ground and, and their constituents. Um, and so we, we worked very hard in that space. We tried to move the needle. I think we did for the time that we were there. Uh, really try to put states back in the driver's seat with respect to how they set these clean water standards for their, for their uh, resources. So, you know, we worked very hard uh, with, uh, with the state of Missouri. On, on a particular nutrient criteria um, that I think we all came to a, a great outcome at the end of it, but it was, it was not easy um, to get there. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you might see some of that uh, start to unwind a little bit uh, where EPA staff may become a little bit more emboldened uh, to see outcome-driven uh, results as opposed to sort of, you know, states in control, what's the process here, are we following really what the Clean Water Act set for this relationship between the states and the federal government. So, you know, it's so important. Uh, states are and should be empowered to make these decisions and to, and to uh, really be in control of their destiny in that regard. But, you know, we'll see what happens. So, Dave, I want to... Um 
come back to where we're at today, and I think you you set the stage well from the standpoint that the administration had said that they would work with the farming community, yet we made the early move to, to go ahead and remand or whatever the proper word is in terms of the navigable water protection rule. Now we're undergoing um, virtual listening sessions. We also have another piece that's out there in terms of, you know, EPA and the Corps saying that there's been significant environmental harm since the rule was put in, the navigable water protection rule was put in place last summer. So there's kind of, there's a lot going on. There's a lot that we could probably comment on now, at least through this listening session process. So what are your thoughts are all around that? Well, you know, the listening session, it's good. I mean, and to do the stakeholder outreach and to travel the country and to listen, um, you know, how, you know, I'll be interested to watch to see is that um, so they can write about it and say they did it, um, but they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. Um, I I think they took a, a little bit of a credibility hit uh, early on when they said they were, you know, the administrator, as he's going through the confirmation hearing, said he was going to, he's going to listen. Um, but they came out and announced that they were getting rid of the navigable water protection rule, and now we're going to listen. And I think that was a disconnect. Um, and whether or not that was intentional or um, they could have managed it differently, but I think the conversations should have been, should we uh, get rid of the navigable waters protection rule? And if, or if you wanted to modify it, how would you modify it? But they decided to get rid of it, and then they're doing the listening session. And I think that puts them in a bit of a defensive posture with the regulated community going forward. And so, you know, I, I hope hopefully they'll listen to to what people have to say. Um, a lot of people are you know, giving them a earful about, you know, we finally have a rule we can understand. Um, but it's a uh, it'll be it'll be interesting. I you know, make no mistake about it. They're writing already. Um, they're they're not going to listen. They're not going to do the stakeholder outreach and then go to the whiteboard and and then start working on it. They're already working on it, and they have their ideas and where they want to go. Um, and uh, the goal now going forward is to see if the the grassroots um, campaigns and the outreach you, know, you can you can help them before they put a final pen to paper shape the outcome. So um, that you know that's where I see you know sort of the outreach and the and the grassroots campaign going. Um, but we'll see. It'll, it'll be interesting to see where they go. So, am I mistaken? I thought I've heard that. Uh officials say, well, we're not going back to WOTUS in terms of the 2015 rule, but I can't go anywhere around the state. And when this issue comes up, just this look of confusion as well as outrage in terms of where are we at? What does this mean? Because <laughs> folks don't know. Yeah. Well, right now, the good news and the number one thing pe- people have to know is that the navigable waters protection rule is the law of the land. Okay. Right. That is it's on the books. Um, you know, there's a lot of legal scrambling going on right now, but this administration, I think, legally was at least leaning into the right thing on, you know, there's a, can if you redo the rule, do you take the rule off the books um, and then put a, put a new rule back on the books? In order to take the rule off the book, you have to comply with the procedural legal requirements to do so. And they are at least walking down that path. Um I think there's still some litigation where people are just trying to declare, you know, vacate the rule and take it off the books. But for the time being, what your what your sector needs to know is that the navigable waters protection rule is a law of the land. Um, and until they go through a rulemaking to take that off the books, and then another rulemaking to put their rule back on the books, 
Um, so, you know, you have a nice time period, um, you know, some certainty for the foreseeable future. Um, but, you know, they're, it, you know, they've got a four-year administration. Um, the, the Obama administration, when they did their rule, uh, released their rule in year six. You know, talk about the audacity of hope, right? Um, and so I don't, there are enough people from the Obama administration that are in the Biden administration, and I think they're going to make sure they get whatever it is they're going to do done in their first term. Um, and so you'll see activity, you know, very active activity at the back half of this year and then all through next year. And you might be looking at a new regulatory landscape, 2023, 2024. Okay, so Anna, what's it mean when they say they're not going back to the 2015 rule? What, what, is, what does that mean? Your guess is as good as mine, but <laughs> Thank you. I don't. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of hard uh, to to imagine them starting from somewhere else as sort of their baseline, right? I mean, that, you, you've got three sets of, of regs now that they could start with as their baseline: the '86 regs, uh, which are not great, uh, and they've been, you know, informed by guidance for many many years. Uh, there's a 2015 reg text and there's the 2020 reg text. Um, if they're going to pick one of those three to start from, probably pick in 2015 and then make their tweaks here and there. What does that look like? Really, you know, reading the tea leaves here. Yeah, I, I will. I hear what they're saying, but I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I, you know, I, I hope they're well-intentioned and, and I think they're well-intentioned um, in doing the outreach and trying to find, in their view, a middle ground. Obviously, I'm biased, and quite frankly, I thought the Navajo Water Protection Rule was a bit of that middle ground. Um, you know, we had people on both sides who truly hated what we did, and you had a lot of people in the middle who were disappointed. Um, but you know, we we tried to take sort of that middle ground approach, um, and so they're they're saying they're going to go between 2020 rule and the 2015 rule. I think it remains to be seen. I think Anna's right. Um, you know, starting from scratch was really hard, um, and to have to ask their staff to try to do that again, I think they're going to default to 2015 and work from there. But that's just—it's just a guess, an informed guess, but you know, educated guess. We've covered a lot of ground, and you know, as someone that you know, I'm kind of a policy wonk as a as a farmer, um, and. When I think about these issues, um, I want you to know that I come at it from a, a point of being humbled by the work that you've done. I, uh, having worked in state government, um, it's a, it can be a thankless job when you're trying to do the right thing, right, and provide regulatory certainty and clarity uh, for those that are subject to, to laws and regulations. And so when I think about the work that you've done, it really is humbling for me to sit here as the special guest host this time. Uh, but to have the two of you who have really worked hard to, to try to listen to farmers and ranchers across the country. And we certainly appreciate you coming to Missouri to, to in many ways, what has been an epicenter for a lot of this debate for a long time and certainly appreciate the work that you're doing to help our members and others understand not just where we're at, but more importantly, what's at stake as we think ahead. So anything you want to close? You know, I would just say you all are special people. You have to keep doing everything you're doing because uh, it's so critical to the process and to the outcome and, and how we get 
to the next place. So thank you for everything that you've done. You know, keep up the good work and, you know, thank you. Yeah, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, you come work for this organization or when you're when you're out in the landscape working the farm um, or the ranch, you know, you have a passion in what you do, right? Um, that passion is going to be necessary going forward. You know, it's what, you know, we saw that passion uh, and, and had that passion. You know, it was hard uh, revisiting this, um, you know, quite frankly, hard working, you know, with staff who had been pushed hard before and we were asking them to do a lot. Um, but it was sort of passion and belief in what we were doing. Um, and, and we get that from folks like you. Um, if you guys are passionate about what you're doing on the landscape, I think the federal government and state government needs to be equally passionate about making sure they get it right. Because when if they get it wrong, it matters, right? It matters in how many, what's your production rate? It matters in whether or not you get involved in enforcement actions. You know, government shouldn't be wrong in this space. And and so, um, so we just try to remember that when we went into these jobs. And um, and but we're working for folks like you, so we appreciate that. Appreciate everything you do. Well. We thank you. And when I thank you, know, I have members who still take a lot of pride in the parody that we did some time ago, That's Enough, the spinoff of, uh, what was the movie? Fro- it was the spinoff from Frozen, um, Let It Go, right? And the Clay family, uh, Andy Clay, who now serves on our state board, he has informed me that he will never step foot in a canoe in their ditch again to help us. But uh, every once in a while, I do hear from members say, hey, is there going to be a part two uh, uh, as this comes back? So so who knows? But I, I can tell you that Missouri Farm Bureau, our members stand ready um, and already are engaging and having these conversations in their communities about what's at stake and trying to get others primed and ready. So thanks for being here. We appreciate you being a part of, of digging in and look forward to working with you in the weeks and months to come. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 